Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pause and bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we're your people and this is time that is uniquely your time. On this, the Lord's day, we have carved it aside because you have as something that is holy, where we allow you to speak into our lives and we, with rapt attention, listen to what your spirit might be teaching or exhorting, challenging us. Lord, give us minds to think and comprehend and hearts to obey in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have heard of that little word game that has gone on in Economics 101 class. It's a little phrase called, you have two cows. And the idea is that in a cashless society, you give a farmer two cows and he will make choices based on his desires or the environment around him. And since then, it's become a a phrase that is used for all sorts of political jokes, political platforms. For instance, uh, Democrat, you have two cows. Your neighbor has none. You feel guilty for being successful. Barbara Streisand sings for you. Republican, you have two cows. Your neighbor has none. So? (laughs) Communist. Communist, you have two cows. The government seizes both and provides you with milk. You wait in line for hours to get it. By the time you do, it's expensive and sour. American Corporation, you have two cows. You sell one, lease it back to yourself, and do an IPO on the second cow. (laughs) You force the two cows to produce the milk of four cows. You are surprised when one cow drops dead. So you spin an announcement to the analysts stating that you have downsized and are reducing expenses. Your stock goes up. French Corporation, you have two cows. You go on strike because you want three cows. You go to lunch and drink wine. Life is good. (laughs) Japanese Corporation, you have two cows. You redesign them so they're one-tenth the size of an ordinary cow and produce 20 times the milk. You learn to travel on unbelievably crowded trains. Most are at the top of their class at cow school. Russian Corporation, you have two cows. You have some vodka. You count them and learn you have five cows. You have some more vodka. You count them and again you learn you have 42 cows. The mafia shows up and takes over how many cows you really have. Iraqi Corporation. You have two cows. They go into hiding. They send radio tapes of their mooing. Well, in each scenario, you have people who make choices based upon the cows that they have, and their life is changed somehow according to those choices. Now, a testimony is when a person makes a choice based upon one Christ Jesus the Lord. Whatever choice a person makes about Him becomes their testimony, spiritually speaking. When a person receives Christ as Savior, as Lord, and life changes, then that person has something to tell, a testimony. 
Some testimonies are very simple, very low-key. Simply, I came to the knowledge of the truth. I gave my heart to Him. I'm different. Other people have very dramatic testimonies and very far-reaching ones. And one of those is Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus' testimony, what happened to him on the Damascus Road, is one of the most important, pivotal points actually in all of history. There was a lawyer named Frank Morrison, a British unbeliever, who decided that he would overturn Christianity, he thought. He had two problems. He said if anyone is going to overturn the credibility of Christianity, he has to address two issues. Number one, the resurrection of Christ. Number two, the transformation of Saul of Tarsus. How an antagonistic rabbi bent on stopping the spread of messianic movement, those who were following Christ, suddenly becomes the chief evangelist for the Christian faith. Highly unlikely, highly uncanny. And the rest of his life, Saul would have to tell the story, well, a funny thing happened to me on the way to Damascus. And we're about to read that. This conversion, this transformation of this man Saul was so shocking to the early church, and it was shocking, that his story is told no less than three times in the book of Acts alone. Three times it's mentioned. Now, we're going to look at verse 3 in chapter 9 down to about verse 7. And we're going to look at this event itself in four rapid phases. Four rapid phases. Jesus comes with an interruption in Saul's life. The interruption leads to an interrogation by Jesus of Saul. Then that produces a conviction in the heart of Saul that leads to a resignation of his life. Let's begin in verse 3. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. The first thing that happened was an interruption. I have been on this road a few times, this Damascus road. And the best spot to see it is on a little hill in the Golan Heights where on a good day you can follow this road and see all the way to the outskirts of Damascus. And I've stood there on many occasions looking down, wondering about that event, wondering what was going on in his mind, thinking what spot it would be in. The truth is we don't exactly know where it happened. There are three churches on that road, all that will show you the exact spot it happened. So it shows you we don't know. Here's the question. Why Damascus? What's he doing going 150 miles north from Jerusalem? That's a long distance away. Answer, there's a huge Jewish community at that time in Damascus. 
No less than 40 synagogues were in that town. Flavius Josephus points back to a time in history when 10,000 Jews were massacred in Damascus alone. Massacred. That shows you the huge population base of Jewish people in Damascus. And why is that significant? Because there was a persecution in Jerusalem that caused Jewish believers in Christ to flee northward toward Damascus, 150 miles, and to be interspersed in those synagogues because there was safety. And that's what bothered Saul. He saw this messianic movement as dangerous. He felt it was his God-given goal to stop it. And so he goes. But on the way, a funny thing happened. He got interrupted. We read the story, this bright light shone around him. Have you ever been in a matinee, a movie, a theater during the day, and you walk out after the matinee, after your eyes have dilated and gotten used to the darkness, and you walk out in the sun, you react. You go, oh, it's so bright. This was more than just a bright, clear, sunshiny day. Later on in Acts chapter 26, this same Saul of Tarsus will stand before King Agrippa and give his testimony. And this is what he will say. At midday, 12 noon, at midday, O king, as I journeyed, I saw a light that was brighter than the sun. He was interrupted. I don't know if you have ever been somewhere, but really not been there. That is, your mind is distracted, you're preoccupied. I was driving through the mountains of North Carolina some years back. I had a map on my lap because I really didn't exactly know where I was going. So I was driving, but I was distracted. I was preoccupied, looking down, looking up, looking down. My car was swerving, but, but just a little. And I was speeding, but just a little. But, but it was enough to get the attention of a local policeman who pulled me over. Got out of the car. It was a classic moment. He walked up and said the familiar sentence, Driver's license and registration, please. So I gave it to him. You know how fast you were going, boy? No, sir. You're not from around here, are you, boy? No, sir. And he gave me a ticket. After that ticket, I was cured. The rest of the day, I watched where I was going. I kept the speed limit. The interruption cured the distraction. Now look at the word in our text, suddenly. It's there for a reason. All of a sudden, God interrupted him. It was a typical, normal day. Saul's going about what he thinks is his God-given calling, and suddenly, God breaks in on the scene. There's no advance warning. There's no letters written across the sky, be careful, tomorrow God's going to get you. None of that. Just, he's on his way, and suddenly. In other words, when Saul of Tarsus went to the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem and wanted official papers to arrest Christians in Damascus, God was silent. When his posse galloped north toward Damascus, God was silent. Hour after hour, mile after mile, God was silent. But 
some lonely stretch of road, isolated and away from Jewish populations, synagogues, Sanhedrins, and temples, out in the middle of nowhere, suddenly he's knocked on his back. God interrupted him. I believe that this Saul, a.k.a. Paul the Apostle, recounts this on several occasions. We've already covered Philippians chapter 3. But let me read a verse that we didn't cover when we looked at that text. In Philippians 3, Paul writes this. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. You hear that little phrase, laid hold? I want to lay hold of the reason that Jesus Christ laid hold of me. That phrase, laid hold of, is a single word in Greek, katalambano. You know what it really means? To seize, to grab. You grab somebody by the arms, look here! To arrest. In other words, what Paul is saying is, before I could arrest anybody, Jesus arrested me. And he's speaking about this Damascus Road experience. You might say Jesus pulled him over and gave him a ticket. Interrupted him. He's no longer distracted. There's a point to be made. Salvation is not always a long, drawn-out process. For some, it can happen in in an epiphanal moment. They get it. God has their attention. Now, for some people, it is a process. They hear the gospel. They reject it. Their friend gets saved. They're skeptical. They come to church. They're standoffish. But there's this process that leads them to the Savior. With others, it's quicker. I'll never forget my good friend Gino Geraci, the night he got saved, and I wasn't saved. It was a Saturday night. Well, that Saturday afternoon, I was at his house, and he was in his bedroom rolling a marijuana cigarette, talking about how good life was. The next day, 24 hours later, I visit him again. This time he has a Bible in his hand. He's pointing his finger at me, telling me, you're going to hell unless you receive Christ. I go, no, wait, 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 wait. In the last 24 hours, what happened? Don't tell me you can change, I said, that suddenly. Well, that Saturday night, he had met Christ. And he had changed that suddenly. The point to be made here is that salvation begins by an interruption of some kind. God breaks in on you. You know, God always makes the first move. Did you understand that salvation isn't initiated by man? I know people like to say, well, I'm searching for God. Truth is, He's not lost. He's been looking for you. He's the one that started the whole thing. He's the the one that put the hunger in your heart. The Bible says we love Him because He first loved us. He's the one that initiates. But sometimes God will, by a circumstance, get our attention. Very dramatically. Where we look up. We're not distracted. We're not preoccupied. It could be an auto accident. Suddenly we think about God. It could be a biopsy report from a doctor. Suddenly we're thinking about God. We realize I'm not in control anymore. With some folks, it's easier than with others. Let me, let me explain. Some people, you just have to nudge. Other people, God has to knock. 
young Samuel was just a little boy when God was trying to get a hold of his life. And all God had to say was, Samuel, Samuel. And this little boy responded instantly, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. Don't you wish everybody was that easy? Don't you wish you could say, You know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and you need to receive Christ. Okay. I'm all ears. But not everybody is. Some people put up a fight. And they're more, instead of like Samuel, they're more like Jacob who wrestled all night with the angel of God until he lost and he walked away the rest of his life limping. Either way, there's an interruption. God gets a person's attention. Second phase here to notice is that this interruption led to an interrogation. In verse 4, he fell to the ground and he heard a voice. He didn't know who the voice is, but a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, so he knew his name. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You'll note that this voice began in the traditional double intonation of the name. Shaul, Shaul. And he immediately thought, Okay, who is that? He knows my name. Who are you, Lord? Now, the word Lord, you may think of in terms of, I acknowledge you as the Lord of all, your sovereign God. But that's not really the intended use of it in this verse. The word kurios can also mean your honor or sir. And since Saul doesn't know who's talking to him, it's a simple, who are you, sir? Like, identify yourself. Now, the next phrase is the monumental pivotal moment in Saul's life. And the words that come are like a lightning bolt. It's not what he expected. Who are you, sir? Identify yourself. I am Jesus. Moments of deafening silence. He must have thought in his mind, "Uh uh-oh... This interrogation, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And when he identified himself as Jesus, it meant two things at least. It meant number one, and that's why I say, uh uh-oh, it meant that Jesus is alive. See, Saul of Tarsus didn't believe in a resurrection. I know his followers said, he's alive. He said, I don't buy that. There's a bunch of people following a dead Messiah. Uh, Moreover, he's a cursed Messiah, he thought, because the Bible says in Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You're following a guy who suffered that kind of ignominious death? This is crazy. Until he heard the words, I am Jesus. Oh, Oh, he's alive. There really is a resurrection. Now, folks, I believe that Saul of Tarsus actually saw here Jesus Christ. I believe it was a Christophany. I believe he appeared and he saw his form, that it wasn't a voice out of a light. Why do I say that? Because as you follow the text down to verse 17, when he gets to Damascus and Ananias and God have already had a conversation, Ananias went went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road. 
God told Ananias that Jesus appeared to him. Not only that, but later on, Paul the Apostle will recall this event. And this is what he says. 1 Corinthians 15. I'll just read it to you. It's a long chapter, but it's all about the resurrection. And the first part is, We know Jesus rose from the dead bodily because of all the people that saw him. He says, I passed on to you what was most important and what has been passed on to me, that Christ died for our sins, just as the Scripture said. He was buried and raised from the dead on the third day, as the Scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve apostles. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, but some have died by now. Then he was seen by James, and later on by all the apostles. Last of all, I saw him too long after the others, as though I had been born at the wrong time. Did you get that? They all saw him, but long after that, I saw him too. This is what he means. He had an apparition of Jesus Christ. He stood there and spoke to him. In fact, Paul will use this as part of his credentials to be an apostle. 1 Corinthians 9, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord Jesus Christ? So number one, for Saul hearing these words, this meant Jesus is alive. It meant something else. Number two, it meant that Jesus is one with his people. Notice he didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Saul, why are you persecuting them? He says, why are you persecuting me? I have such a unity with my people, Saul of Tarsus, that when you're messing with them, you're messing with me. That's the discovery that he's making. You know that Paul in the New Testament will describe we, the church, as the body of Christ. And we're united together. And he will say, if one member suffers, all the members suffer. But he calls Jesus the head of the body. Have you ever hit your thumb with a hammer? Uh, I had a carpenter who tried to show me how he did it. You know, they can take a nail and just kind of stand it upright. And I've seen them in one fell swoop, not tack it in, but just drive the nail in, letting go of the hand, and just at the right time, driving the head of the nail all the way through. Just boom. And I remember asking somebody, hey, show me how to do that. He did his part fine. But I missed And I discovered something. When you hit your thumb with a hammer, it doesn't just hurt in your thumb. It shoots all the way through your entire body. All those little synapses go, boom, explodes right in your head. Jesus can say, I am feeling their pain. I am inextricably tied to my people. At one point, Jesus said, and... Matthew 25, Inasmuch as you've done it to one of these, the least of my brethren, you have done it to me. Here's the point. You and I better think twice before we attack another believer.
Because when you attack a believer who loves the Lord Jesus Christ and is wanting to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, you may be in for a battle that's bigger than you thought. And I don't know if you've ever seen God fight. I was in the Philippines a few years ago, and I was there at a church in Mindanao, southern island in the Philippines, and I was telling this story to our men's conference this weekend. The pastor said to me, hey, how did you get here? What route did you take? I said, I flew into this island, took a boat to that island, took a bus here. And he said, you should never take that route. More Americans have been killed in the last month on that route than any other one. I'm thinking, well, now you tell me. Nice to see you. But he was telling me what had happened down there. There was a guerrilla army called the NPA, the New People's Army, a guerrilla communist group trying to take over, seceding from the government. And uh, they came into his church or one of the churches in the area a few Sundays before, brought in their machine guns and said, we're going to be back next week. We want all your money. We want all your goods. Or we're going to kill you, burn your church and your village down. Next Sunday. The next Sunday rolls around. Now, if ever there was a day when you'd find an excuse not to go to church, <laughs> that would have been it. Yeah, I got something going. There's something really good on TV. I'm going to go play basketball or something. The church was packed. Packed of praying believers waiting for these people to come. They never came. And the pastor had a twinkle in his eye as he was telling me this. He said, there were two jeeps filled with these machine gun carrying terrorists. And in a freak accident, they went off the road and these guys were all killed. Now, only God can fight like that. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I now understand he's alive because he's talking to me. And number two, that I'm messing with him because I've touched his people. So the interruption led to an interrogation that now brings a conviction that has been there that Jesus touches on. Look at that little phrase, that sentence at the end of verse 5. Here's the conviction. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? To the modern ear, that's an enigmatic phrase. We don't talk like that anymore. In ancient Greek classic literature, it was a common phrase. To kick against the goads meant it's foolish to resist. I I suppose a modern equivalent would be you can't fight City Hall. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. You can't resist. It's a farming term. It's a term of farmers who would goad their oxen to pull the plow. Now, this is what a goad is. It'll help you understand it. A goad was a long, slender stick, blunt at one end, sharp pointed at the other end. And the farmer would hold this goad and would use it to motivate, convince his oxen who just wanted to sit there and not pull the plow. The goad was helpful to convince that ox that he ought to go forward. He just pokes him, then gets up and starts moving. Sometimes, though, oxen would kick backwards against the goads. And in trying to kick against that sharp implement, would get his legs stuck into that and be very painful. So 
the ox would only make it worse. In other words, Jesus is saying, Saul, I've been trying to lead you somewhere, and it is painful and futile for you to resist. Okay, now follow me here. That sentence indicates something to us. Yes, there was a sudden appearance of Jesus, but it indicates that there has been a long, ongoing resistance by Saul. He's been fighting God. He's been resisting the pokes, the prods of the Spirit of God in his conscience. He's been saying no to him for some time. He's been feeling convicted. But he's been resistant. And now he's going to arrest Christians. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Question. What do you suppose those goads in Saul's life were? Well, I can guess a few of them. Number one, the life of Jesus Christ. You know that Saul of Tarsus was a contemporary with Jesus. They were practically the same age. They lived at the same time. Now, some scholars believe Paul wasn't even in Israel at the time Jesus was. But some of us believe that it's likely that he was there and at least heard and saw Jesus on many occasions. Now, I'm piecing things together, but if the description of the physical Paul is correct, that he was short and bent over, bald, hook-nosed, bull-legged, all that, it would mean that whenever Jesus gave a message that he was either on his tiptoes or right up front, right up front, hearing, processing, listening, watching. And he must have said every time he saw and heard Jesus, I don't buy it. I don't buy this stuff. This guy's dangerous. But everywhere he turned, so many people were turning to Jesus. Jerusalem was filled with Christians. Now they're going all over Israel. And the life of Christ was prodding him, poking him as he sees the influence of Jesus. Goad number two. Not just the life of Christ, the death of Stephen. I believe that what Saul of Tarsus saw when he watched Stephen slump over in a pool of blood and die so pricked his conscience that he was trying to fight that, fight that, fight that, and he couldn't shake it. You remember Saul was there in the synagogue when Stephen gave his speech. Saul was there when they stoned him. He watched their outer garments of the people who killed him. In fact, he was egging them on. He was consenting to his death. Kill him! Kill him! He deserves it. And he watched him die, but he'd never seen anyone die like that. Most people die, cry out, Please stop! Not this guy. He looked up and said, Oh, Lord, don't lay this into their charge. Blood coming down him. And finally, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Saul had never seen anybody die like that, and it was goading him. Saul, it's hard for you to kick against those motivating things that have been in your conscience, the conviction. Some of you, perhaps, have encountered Jesus Christ like Saul. You've come to church. Oh, you've listened politely. You've watched the work of Jesus Christ in your friend's life. They get all excited. They buy a Bible. They tell you about Jesus. And you go, that's nice for you. But that's about it. You you won't come any closer. In fact, that's one of the reasons you come to church rarely. Because you just don't want to be around that kind of conviction. So you fight it. 
But with Saul of Tarsus, he not only saw life, but he saw this young boy die. This week I was on a website for Voice of the Martyrs, and I was reading a story about a young 19-year-old prisoner in North Korea who was killed. I don't know if you know this or not, but thousands upon thousands of our brothers and sisters who love Jesus are in prison in North Korea. Recently, a 19-year-old boy died in prison by prison guards. This one prison guard who was a part of this and saw this was so troubled by this 19-year-old Christian teenager dying that after he died, he left his post, went out to the town, knocked on his parents' door, and said to them, I have tortured and I have killed many people. But since the death of this young man, I have been troubled. He went on to say, I was troubled because of the sweetness of this young man. The way he died, even though his body was failing, he was so triumphant. You know what happened? That night, his two parents led that prison guard to Christ. The conviction of seeing this death, very similar to this, brought brought him to Christ. Let's look finally at this fourth phase, and this is the resignation phase. Verse 6, So he, trembling and astonished, don't miss those words. They will set you up for what you're about to read. He's trembling. He's shaking. He's not in control anymore. He's not, I am Saul, the great rabbi. He's at a, at a disposition where he's weak. And he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? What a question from a headstrong young rabbi who knew exactly what he ought to be doing. Now he says, what do you want me to do? And he said, go into the city and it will be told what you must do. Notice he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Same word, kurios, Lord. But here I believe it means something different. See, before he said, who are you, Lord? He didn't know it was Jesus. Now when he discovers it is Jesus, he is alive, he knows my name, I've been messing with his people, there's a sudden quick turn in his life, in his thought life. And when he says, what do you want me to do, Lord? It's a resignation now to the will and the mastery of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe this is the moment of Saul of Tarsus' salvation. Where in his heart he believes, and he believes enough to resign the future, his will, to the will of Jesus Christ. He's a changed man. God sent him an interruption. The interruption led to an interrogation. The interrogation revealed an ongoing conviction. And now there's a final I surrender a resignation. C.S. Lewis describes this part of Saul's life. Classic. He says, God is like the master chess player. And he's moving Saul into a corner until God finally says, checkmate. He's pinned. He can't do anything. Ironic, isn't it? The hunter has become the prey. The hunted. The hound of heaven has him. And he gets saved. Saul's conversion is so important an event that a lot of people try to explain it away. You know, you and I read it and we go, "Ah, okay, I get that, I believe that. Not everybody. The French atheist Renan said, it was an uneasy conscience with unstrung nerves accompanied by the fatigue of the journey, his eyes inflamed by the hot sun, and he had a sudden stroke of fever that produced a hallucination. 
whatever. Others try to say what really happened is there was an electrical storm. And the lightning happened at just the right moment. When the flash of lightning happened, this guy had such a guilty conscience, he thought he saw God. Whatever. The most common explanation is that Saul of Tarsus had an epileptic seizure. Which to me is funny because medical experts will tell you people who have epileptic fits don't remember them. This guy goes into great detail about his seizure. I love what Charles Spurgeon said in answering that. Oh, blessed epilepsy if it affects a conversion like this. <laughs> As we close this morning, there are two questions I want to leave with you. There are the two questions in our text. Number one, you may have answered, you may not have answered. Or question number one, who are you, Lord? You may have gone to church all your life. You may have been raised in a church. It might just be something you do, but you've never taken the time to find out who Jesus Christ really is. That's number one. Because that will compel you to come to Him and resign. But the second question, even though you may have settled the first question and you might be a child of God, here's a question for all of us. Lord, what do you want me to do? Notice the question is different from what we often ask. Lord, you know what I want you to do? Or Lord, you know what I want to do is such and such. That's how a lot of you live your life. And frankly, the reason some of you are unproductive even as Christians is because you've never really asked the Lord, what do you want me to do? That opens up a door of fruitfulness like nothing else. But perhaps you've even sensed the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life or Jesus had been trying to get a hold of you. And today, before we leave, this would be a good time to say, I quit, I resign, I surrender. It's not about what I want to do or what I want you to do for me, but what do you want me to do? And I want to follow you. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.